for sake of time, because we did the report there, not that that wasn't important to do, we're going to jump right in. No introduction, so if you look at your handout, we're going to start here. The main idea of this text is the danger of theological compromise and cultural conformity. All these letters are pointing out, bringing to light a danger that exists within this specific church that's being written to, which is applicable to church, all churches throughout the history of the church. So the main idea is this, the danger of theological compromise and cultural conformity. And then you see this danger, I've kind of spelled it out a little bit more detail. Uh, The church and individual Christians will be tempted to make compromises to the Bible... But the true believer, the true church, remains faithful, resulting in Jesus' reward of eternal life. So let's get started. Verse 12, we've kind of outlined it this way. Jesus says, I am the judge. That's what he's telling us here. It's what he's telling his church. Once again, uh, John is to send a message. And he's to send it to the angel of the church in Pergamum. The angel. Uh, Another word for angel is messenger. This is the representative of that congregation who will take a copy of, if you will, uh, at that time, they didn't know it was the book of the Revelation, but we know it is that. This messenger was to take a copy of the book back and read that and specifically the letter that was being applied to them. John is told to write. He's given a He's given a specific message for this church, as with all the other seven churches. There's a specific message to them, which, keep in mind, this message is applicable to the church throughout the history of the church. It was for this church in history at that time, but it's for all the churches. John's told her right. There's a specific message. Now, let me give you a little background on Pergamum, Okay. The city of Pergamum had, at that time, the world's largest library. 200,000, listen, handwritten books. No Kindle. No uh, iBooks, right? Uh, No uh, audio books. Everything had been handwritten. 200,000 Books, handwritten. Because of its massive library, you have to stop and think, it was an important center for culture and learning. Anytime a place had a huge library like that, people would flock to that place because that was a place of learning. You could go and you could get these books and read these books. So it was a place, a center of culture and learning. It was also a central place of worship. Uh, There were temples dedicated to the worship of Greek gods there. But overshadowing all these temples was a huge temple dedicated to emperor worship. The emperor. There was a temple there dedicated to him where worship took place. And Pergamum apparently built the first temple ever dedicated to emperor worship. So you've got to stop and think. Christians living in Pergamum were facing uh, um, some serious danger. The city was full of idolatry. It was full of immorality. It was evil. It was an idolatrous place. But, again, highly educated. People highly educated and satisfied with themselves. You know, they had arrived. This is the culture that's going on in that city. That's where this church is at. That's where Christians are living. Now, notice how Jesus introduces himself to the church at Pergamum. This is very, very 
very important here. He's, it says, the words of him, uh, John, write to this messenger, take this message back to the church at Pergamum and to all the churches and write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. If you'll remember, uh, back to John's vision of Jesus in chapter 1, verse 16, you read the words there, from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. In chapter 19 of Revelation, verse 15, we read about when Jesus returns, when He returns in His glory, His second coming. We read in verse uh, 15 of chapter 19, from His mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. Based on that verse in Revelation 19, we can determine that this sharp two-edged sword is almost certainly representing an image of judgment. Revelation 19 says that's what he's coming to do with that sword. Now we should probably understand this to mean that Jesus is going to speak words of judgment. That's what this is talking about. John's audience knows that Pergamum, which is, by the way, a Roman city, had the authority to carry out capital punishment with a sword. That's what the Roman authorities did. They kept people in line with the sword. In other words, you got out of line, there was judgment coming. And they used the sword to carry out judgment in that time period. The sword being a symbol of judgment points us to the authority of Jesus. That's what this sword is intended to do. It's actually the word of Jesus, the word of God. The sword of judgment that comes out of his mouth. And that's what Jesus is saying. This is his message to this church and to the church throughout history. I'm the judge. I'm walking among you. I'm in the midst of my churches, but I am the judge. Jesus speaks with decisive words of judgment. And the people in Pergamum, they would have known about the Roman authorities. They they would probably uh, experience an eyewitness to some of the judgment by the Roman government with the sword. So they knew when they heard that word sword, what do you think come to their mind? Judgment, And when they hear that word, they understand that Jesus is sending this message. I am the judge. So I was thinking this week, when, when I read that, you know, we, you hear me say this all the time. We read the Bible, right? We, we read words, right? And we just kind of like, okay, check my list. I did my Bible reading today. And I go about my business. But I was thinking, you know, if I'm one of those Christians in Pergamum, and I'm aware of what that sword represents... I'm thinking, as they're thinking, and then I apply it to myself. Well, whose judgment do I fear? Whose judgment do I fear? The Christians in Pergamon could, could, could avoid. They could avoid the sword of Rome by compromising. Remember, emperor worship, right? The emperor is Lord. What do Christians say? Jesus is Lord. They could compromise and avoid the sword of judgment. But doing so would put them in danger of what? The sword of Jesus. So which one do you want? Whose judgment do you, do you prefer? Christian, you will face situations where what the world judges to be right goes against what Jesus says is right. You will even face situations where what you judge to be right goes against what Jesus says to be right. Christians will do that. So here's the question for, for me and for us. Whose sword do we respect when those things happen? The sword of the world and the judgment that 
the world might inflict? Or do we fear the sharp-toothed sword from the mouth of Jesus? His judgment coming against us through His Word. The church will always face that. And here's the question we ask ourselves. Do I want to avoid the world's judgment? Or do I want to avoid the judgment of Jesus? One of those two judgments will, will come, come our way, depending on what we choose. And Jesus is telling the church here, I am the judge. I am the authority. My word is the authority over the church. It's not what the world says is right. It's not even what some of us who sit in the pew think we know what is right. It's what Jesus says is right. And Jesus says, I am the judge. I will judge you, individual Christian. I will judge my church based on the Word of God. Remember where these Christians are and the danger they faced of compromising. Look at verse 13. Jesus says, I am the judge. In verse 13, Jesus, He commends their faithfulness. He commends their faithfulness in both... In both the cities of Ephesus and Smyrna, remember we've studied the letters that went to these two churches, we've seen that for the church to live faithful to Jesus, there's a cost, right? In both those letters, we saw that there was a cost. Remember, Smyrna was under heavy persecution, and Jesus was telling them, don't be fearful, stay faithful. In both these places, there was persecution, and there's a significant cost. However, in Pergamum, this hostility was elevated. Ephesus and Smyrna, it was there, but in this city, it was even elevated higher. Notice what Jesus says about Pergamum. Don't miss this. He tells the Christians there, I know where you dwell. Those two words, I know. Remember? He said that to the church in Smyrna, right? And to the church of Ephesus. He says, I know. Why does Jesus know, church? Because he's what? Walking in the midst of his churches. He knows what's going on. I know where you dwell. Notice what he says. It's the place where Satan's throne is, where Satan dwells. How would you like to have your church located in that place where Satan dwells? With all its temples dedicated to worship of these Greek gods and to, dedicated to emperor worship, it's the city where Satan has his throne. It's where he dwells. And that's to say it's a city saturated in pagan idolatry and immorality. It's overwhelmed with spiritual darkness. And that's where, that's where the Pergamon Christians live. That's where the church at Pergamon was located. It's located in this dark, pagan, <coughs> immoral place. Think about that city and the darkness that is prevailing over that place, worshiping all these Greek gods, worshiping the emperor. And we're going to find out in just a moment just how bad it really was there. And yet, right in the midst of that, there is a church. I find it interesting that Jesus didn't come and say, well, I know where you're at. It's a bad spot. You'll just relocate somewhere else. That ain't what he said. You know, a lot of churches will do that. When the neighborhood gets bad, you know what they do? Let's go. Let's move somewhere else. Jesus said, oh no, I know where you dwell. Right in the midst of where Satan dwells, a place where Satan has his throne, is this community of followers of Jesus. Jesus said, I know where you live. Jesus told them, where Satan has his throne, where Satan's at, that is where you are. Um, 
I realize where we're at. We're in the south. We're in North Carolina. We're in Franklin County. But can I tell you something? As time marches on, Satan's setting up shop in a lot of places. Listen, he's always been there. He's just just lulled us to sleep. He's always been there. A a well-known British missionary, his name is C.T. Studd, once said, Some people want to live within the sound of church bells, but I want to build a rescue shop within a yard of hell. The church at Pergamon was a rescue shop within a yard of hell. Devil, the Satan... Satan's throne. I know where you're at. That should be an example for us. It ought to inspire us to the same mission in our community. I know where you're at. Jesus, I know where you're at, Redbud. I know you live in Franklin County. 62% of the people in Franklin County don't attend church. Which equates a lot of them being lost. People living their lives for themselves. I know where you're at. Notice verse 13. In spite of living, if you will, in sin city, Jesus commends the church. He says, yet, what does he say about them? You hold fast my name and you do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you. And once again, Jesus says, where Satan dwells. You see that? How he's got that, all that in between those two statements. I know where you're at. Satan dwells there. The Christians in Sin City, the church, notice what they did. Listen to this. Don't miss. They held fast to the name of Jesus. They didn't compromise that. Holding fast to Jesus' names means that they, they were living lives for the glory of Jesus. Okay? Not only that, they also, Jesus says, did not deny my faith. The believers in Pergamum were faithful to the Word of God, that Jesus is Savior and He's Lord. They were faithful to that. What's going on in Pergamum? Worship who? Who's Lord? Caesar is Lord. And Jesus says, I know, I know you hold fast to my name in that place. I know you don't deny my faith, even though you live where Satan dwells. Here's what we need to think when we we read these words, when we hear these things He's commending them on. Listen, listen church, Jesus cares about His reputation. He cares about His glory. He cares about the truth of God's Word. So I asked myself this week, and I'm going to ask you, in what ways does your life indicate that you don't? Jesus cares about His reputation. He cares about His glory. Did you know that's the one thing that God is the most passionate about is His very own glory? Which if uh, we're people after God's own heart, then we care about what God cares about, right? God cares about what? His glory. We care about God's glory. The churchmen in Pergamum held fast to the name of Jesus. And they, they've not denied the faith. They, they held fast to Jesus' name. And did not deny my faith. Notice this. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Even though this is what happened, you still hold fast to my name. You don't deny the faith. Holding fast to the name of Jesus and to the faith resulted in the martyrdom of one of their very own. 
Think about that. This church held fast to the name of Jesus and even to the faith that Jesus is Lord, even though what? One of their very own was taken away and what happened? The sword came. We don't know nothing about this guy Antipas from the Bible other than these words. Some believe that this was the pastor of this church, which would make good sense when they want to shut down the church. Who do they come after first? They come after the pastor. If you, if you, if you take him out, then the sheep will what? They'll drift away. Tradition says, listen to this. Tradition says, does everybody hear me? Tradition says, the Bible doesn't say, but tradition says that they took Antipas and they placed him inside this hot brass bull. They had this big bull that they would put their sacrifices in. And they heated that brass bull up and they threw Antipas inside that bull and roasted him to death. Now if you're one of them other believers in the church at Pergamon, what are you thinking? There may be hurricanes on the coast, but that's where I'm going. Right? I'm getting out of here. By holding to Jesus' name and not denying the faith, Antipas was killed for the faith. Listen, Antipas believed that Jesus was better than life. Antipas, we're going to throw you inside that bull there. You see it glowing, right? We're going to throw you inside there. These, these Christians of Pergamon were holding up well in this, uh, if you will, a satanic stronghold. And Jesus commends them for that, right? If the letter stops right there, you're like, if you're Pergamum, what are you doing? You got this real long arm and you're doing what? You're, you're patting yourself on the back, right? I mean, Jesus is doing that. He's, he's commending them. That, that's good. They were holding up well. But looking at the next verses, we see they needed to repent of their toleration of something. Jesus says in verses 14 through 16, Jesus says, repent of compromise. <coughs> but, I have a few things against you. You have some there, notice it's some, not everyone, but some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Jesus quickly moves from commending them to condemning them. I have a few things, what does he say, against you. Many in Pergamum were faithful. Antipas, a member, or maybe the pastor of the church, was faithful unto what? Death. However, there were some who were not. Within the congregation, there was a group of compromisers. And what does Jesus say? I am against you. You are going along to get along. The church was, there were some that was giving into the world. The culture of Pergamon was saying, look, people, don't be so narrow-minded. Don't be so intolerant. And what were people doing? They were giving in to that. Not all of them, some of them. Notice what he says. You have some there. There, there's some in the church who are holding <coughs> excuse me, the teaching of Balaam. 
Just in case you're wondering, you should never name your child Balaam. Balaam means a corrupter of people. So don't go to the Bible looking for a name for your child and go. And Balaam, just forget that name and go on by. It won't be in one of those books either, or one of them lists that come out of the most well-known names to name your kids. Look again at verse 14. The teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling lot before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality. <clears throat> you have to go back to the Old Testament to, to see what's going on here. You have the king of Moab. His name was Balak. And Balak is extremely fearful of the people of God, of Israel. So Balak goes to Balaam, who's this sort of uh, mysterious sorcerer, okay? And King Balak tries to hire Balaam to put a curse on Israel. Numbers 22 through Numbers 24. He wants Balaam to put a curse on them so that they can't take possession of his land, the land of Moab. Because listen, he knows what's going on. These are the people who belong to God. And wherever they go, what happens? They conquer. They, they take over. And three times, Balaam tries to put a curse on Israel. And he fails every single time. So he, he develops another strategy. If he can't curse them, he decides he will corrupt them. Okay? So he got a bunch of Moabite women to seduce the Jewish men and pull those men into these idolatrous, immoral lives in Moab. So the Jewish men, you see that they went back into eating food sacrificed to idol and committing idolatry and sexual immorality. Here's Jesus' point. You have some people in the church who are acting like Balaam. And they're seducing you to go back into the very culture that you've been delivered out of to participate in idolatry and immorality. Some, some in Pergamon were compromising this falling into the devil's culture. Now, what did that look like? Uh, not in the Bible, but tradition tells us. We can read the history. Some of the uh, Pergamon church were attending these uh, pagan feasts. And there was immorality and incest and homosexuality and bestiality and adultery going on in these feasts. That's what, they threw a big party and that's what was going on at these big parties. <coughs> you notice the word stumbling block there? That's what those two words refer to. Immorality and idolatry. That's what those words are referring to. There was the celebrating of idols of the culture and acceptance of the sexual way of life that those people viewed. That's the way they viewed life. They were accepting that. And then, listen, and then, here's, what, here's where Jesus is pointing out here. They were doing that. They were being seduced and pulled into this. They were, they were compromising. And then these people were coming to church and they were acting as if everything was okay. And apparently the church had not taken action to deal with that. That's what he's saying. You are compromisers. You hold, you hold to my name and you hold fast to the faith that you have some there who are doing this and you are just... Going about business. Verse 15. So also you have some who hold the teaching of Nicolaitans. 
Uh, the words so also that begins that verse indicates uh, a comparison between what happened with Balaam introducing idolatry and immorality into Israel and the way that the teaching of the Nicolaitan, Nicolaitans excuse me, brings idolatry and immorality into the church in Pergamum. He says what's going on there is just like what Balaam did back here with the people of God. The same thing is going on. It's interesting to note, you can't see this on the surface, it's interesting to note that the two names, Nicolaitans, which is a Greek name, and Balaam, which is Hebrew, both mean the same thing, corrupter of people. The teaching of the Nicolaitans was basically the same as Balaam, immorality and idolatry. Although the majority of the Pergamon church seems to have been remained faithful, they wouldn't take action to deal with those who were living not faithful, not glorifying Jesus. They, they actually tolerated them. They made room for them. They ignored their idolatry and their sexual immorality. Let me ask you something. Isn't it a temptation for us? We might say, well, who am I to take action and get involved? Who am I to disagree? It's not my conviction. Or you might think, can't we all just go along to get along? We'll even hear this. Well, there just needs to be unity in the church. We shouldn't be so radical. We should be loving people. Jesus loves. He wouldn't do anything like that. We should be tolerant. Jesus was tolerant. If you make that statement, you have obviously not read verse 16. Therefore, repent. If you'll remember, when Richard preached uh, through the letter to the Ephesians, or the church at Ephesus, Jesus told the church at Ephesus that he hated something. What was it he hated? <coughs> the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Those are strong words, right? Jesus hates that. Here he calls the church of Pergamon to repent of their compromise toward idolatry and sexual immorality and their toleration of false teaching. Verse 16 says, Therefore, repent. See, this is not just the church at Pergamon. Jesus calls the church today to do more than simply profess the truth and teach the truth and stand firm in our personal commitment to the truth. He calls us to insist that all who join themselves to the church and who profess to follow Jesus along with us, they must hold fast to the truth as well. It's not enough to profess faith in Jesus if you totally abandon the Word of God, the boundaries that He sets up. Jesus says to the church, if you have people in your congregation, church members who are, who are coming to worship and then going back out and falling into the sins of the culture, you can't overlook that. You, you must deal with that. The church must deal with professing believers who are living sinful lives. Those who claim to have been delivered and saved out of the world, but literally, they live the way the world lives. Who said they had a problem with that? Jesus did. And if the church doesn't do that, look at the consequences. The further we go, the more we need to let this grip our hearts. He says, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Repent. Or, what's Jesus say I'm going to do? I'm going to come to you, the church, and I'm going to make war against you. Literally, 
This was a church on the verge of judgment. I want to clarify here. Without a doubt, without a doubt, we want to reach out. That's what we did yesterday, right? Of course we want to welcome unbelievers to hear the gospel and be saved. Of course we want sinning believers to be given grace and forgiveness upon forgiveness upon forgiveness. Remember Matthew 18, 70 times 7? Remember they asked Jesus, is it good enough to forgive someone 7 times? Thinking that was a big deal. And Jesus said, oh no, 70 times 7. Was He saying, really 70 times 7? He's saying no as many times as is necessary. But we don't tolerate sinning as if it's acceptable. Doing so, Jesus says, distorts the gospel. Verse 16, repent. If not, I will come to you and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Notice the weapon that Jesus is going to use. What is it? It goes back to how he started this letter, the sword of my mouth. The weapon Jesus will use is the one certain source of truth, His Word. God's Word and only God's Word, listen, sets the standards for God's church. Let me say that again. God's Word and only God's Word sets the standards for God's Word. So you and I have to get out of this. I've had people, not here, in a previous place of ministry, I've had people say to me when I'm showing something in the Word of God, I see that, but... And I'm going... There, there are buts in the Bible, but that one's not in there. I, I hear you, preacher. I see what's there, but... See, God's Word sets the standard, not you and I. Notice something here in verse 16. Repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them. The, the command to repent, notice, is directed to who? You. In the original language, the Greek, it reads, you must repent. In the Greek also, the word you is singular. You must repent is directed toward the angel, the messenger who represents the church. He gives the message to repent to the church. But I want you to notice something. If the church does not repent, Jesus threatens to make war against who? What's the word? Is it you? Them. Notice that. Repent. If not, I will come to you and make war against them. It seems to indicate that repentance is to take, excuse me, is to take the form of the church pursuing a process of restoring those who are holding to the teaching of the Nicolaitans, who are practicing sexual morality and idolatry. This process of restoring is motivated by the desire, don't miss this, to keep Jesus from making war against those who are holding to that false teaching, who are practicing sexual immorality and idolatry. You don't want Jesus to come in war against them. We the church are to call people to repent because we love them and want to keep them from the judgment of Jesus. And if they do not repent, we're to follow the steps of Matthew 18, because we love them and want to keep them from the judgment of God. When you go after someone who falls away, it's not judgment, it's love, because you want to keep them from Jesus coming against them. Verse 17. Jesus promises His people, 
And by the way, this is going to come at the end of every one of these letters. Jesus is going to make a promise. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. This letter closes with a call to those who have an ear to do what? Hear what the Spirit... Listen, again, these words are critical. Don't miss this. Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Once again, churches is plural. Even, through, even though it is the church in Pergamon that's been addressed in this letter, we're, we're not the church in Pergamon, but Jesus is speaking to us by the Holy Spirit through the Word of God. This letter. The words, He who has an ear, let him hear, appears again in all these letters. And I think I said this last week. What Jesus is saying here is, you need to listen. This is the Holy Spirit of God talking to the church. So this takes this letter of each church and moves it beyond that church to all believers in all times and all places. And it says, listen to this. If you have ears, listen, repent. Jesus then makes a promise to the ones who conquer. And he, he, always, he ends every letter in that using those words. To the one who conquers. He promises the true believer. Notice that the one who conquers is singular. Uh, one commentator points out that uh, the back and forth between the singular and the plural points to the way that as members of the church we have both individual responsibility for ourselves and corporate responsibility for the other members of the body of Christ. Notice Jesus' first promise to the one who conquers. I will give some hidden manna. If you're thinking Old Testament, that would be good. We find manna in the Old Testament. Was that, remember that little honey bread that God provided for His people who were wandering in the wilderness? It was this supernatural food. It was provision supernaturally given by God. God will provide... All you need and provide it through the one who himself is the bread of life and we know him to be who? The Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the man is a picture of. Because Jesus refers to himself in the Gospel of John as the bread of life. And you know what he's doing? He's pointing back to the manna in the Old Testament saying that was pointing to me. I'll give you some hidden manna. Then he says I'll give them a white stone. <clears throat> now, a lot of people will study this letter for one reason. Anybody want to guess what it is? To try to figure out what that white stone is and what the name is that's written on it. Is that the point of the letter? No. I'll give them a white stone. To be honest with you, the exact meaning and the significance of that stone is kind of hard to pin down. If you read all the commentaries, and you're going, well, I'm not going to. If you read them all, there are 12 possibilities as to what this white stone is. Are you ready? I'm not going to give you a single one of them. Notice that there's a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. There's people for years have tried to figure out what the name on the stone is. There are those who speculate and try to determine what the name is. And here's what I would say. No one knows except the one who gets it. You'll get yours. Worry about yours. Don't worry about what everybody else gets. 
Here's what I want to say about the man in the white stone. It could be that these promises are meant to meet the needs that the people seek to meet through idolatry and sexual immorality. Remember, God's provision. Jesus offers the provision of hidden manna, which is better provision than all the idols offer. He tells us we don't need to go after other gods. I'm sufficient. Just like the manna was sufficient, I'm sufficient. And sexual immorality arises from this longing for relationship with most people. The promise of a white stone with a new name written on that stone that no one knows except the one who gets it is a promise of a relationship. That's the point of that stone. It's, a, it's an intimacy. It's a point of a relationship between God and that person. Surely God knows the name on the stone. The one who gets it knows the name on the stone. And that private knowledge, that private contact that no one else shares... It's pointing to the very relationship that you as an individual have with Jesus. That's what that stone is pointing us to. In other words, you're going after all these idols and this sexual immorality. You really want what's best. I'm the manna. I'm the relationship that you need to be pursuing. All that stuff will leave you wanting. It will destroy your lives. I am the one that you need to be pursuing. And see, that's the message we want to tell people when they fall into sin, right? Don't go after those things. They're worthless. They'll destroy your lives. Remember, Jesus has saved you. He's redeemed your life from sin, death, hell, and the grave. Come back to Him. He's the one who will satisfy your soul. So, the church at Pergamum faced a crisis. All churches face this danger. The church was holding fast to Jesus, holding fast to sound doctrine, but they compromised. And the church is told specifically here to repent. Remove the worldly compromise. Don't conform. Or you can expect that Jesus Himself will come and expect Him to war against them. I don't know about you, but that's a warning that grabs my attention. If I were ask you to raise your hands. How many of you want Jesus to come in war against you? How many would raise your hand? If you do, talk with me after. There's something wrong. What a warning. And yet, what a blessing to know that the Lord promises to those who generally trust in Jesus that in Him we have all we need. And that's the message we tell people when we go after them. Look, Jesus is all you need. The gospel is good news because you made a profession of faith. You turned from your sin and you trusted in Christ. And God promises to those who do that, He redeems them. He reconciles them to Himself and He promises them eternal life in heaven. Why are you going after that? Come back to what God has given you. We don't want Jesus to judge you. Let's pray. Father...